For about five weeks now, we've been making our way through the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, looking at what the kingdom of God looks like and how Jesus chooses to describe it. And today, we finally end the sermon series. We end it today in the sixth chapter as Jesus tells us what to pray. And so we come now to Matthew 6, starting in the fifth verse. Let us listen again for a word from God. Jesus said to them, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corner so that people will see them. I assure you, that is the only reward they will get. But when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At 3.46 p.m., the text came across my phone. Due to winter conditions, schools will be closed on Tuesday, January 31st. That made sense. As I looked out the window, sleet was raining down and streets outside were beginning to turn from their usual concrete gray to a glossy, shiny white. And the videos on Instagram and TikTok reported some areas of the state with sleet piling up to five feet. Closing school on Tuesday seemed to be a safe and a wise choice. It was 3.42 p.m. on Tuesday when my phone buzzed on the kitchen counter. The day had been entirely uneventful filled with a plethora of movies and pillow forts as the kids and I remained at home. Katie, on the other hand, had gone into the office, so I fully expected that the text at 3.42 p.m. was her asking about our dinner plans for the evening. But when I turned the phone over, I was greeted with the message, due to winter conditions, schools will be closed again on Wednesday, February 1st. I gleefully ran to the kitchen window, hoping to see another round of sleep, maybe some snow we could play in, but instead found our driveway had returned to its usual concrete gray. The frozen rain that had once piled up had now disappeared, with the only evidence of its existence being a small stream flowing down the street. For a brief second there, I I raised my fist to the sky, and I prayed to my Father in heaven with words I probably shouldn't pray out loud. 
because kudos to all of you who are able to work from home, but I can't. I get distracted by the laundry that needs to be folded. The kids complaining that their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches had peanut butter on them. (laughs) That's a true story. And there's also Netflix, constantly nagging me with that question, are you still watching? Yes, I am. Please don't take, me, take this as me critiquing our public officials who have to make incredibly difficult choices with constantly changing conditions. I just have things to do. And I have expectations that the weather will be nice and that Kids will be in school, and I can go to the office, and I can get my things done. We have expectations. When we go to the restaurant, we expect the table to be clean, and the food to be hot, and the wait staff to be kind. Coming to worship, we expect the lights to be on, the choir to sing, a sermon to be given, and prayers to be said. Even scripture itself has expectations. This living, breathing document of God's relationship with creation sets out this great hope of peace, good news, and eventual salvation. Expectations which Isaiah lays out as the markers of God's messenger and messiah. And so it's no wonder then, as these early Jewish disciples of Jesus listen as he talks about bringing good news to the poor and establishing peace and describing the kingdom that is coming, that they can begin to hear the song of Zion and the shouts of watchmen heralding God's return. They begin to get their hopes up because in Jesus they begin to see the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise and the realization of Israel's expectations. And they're not the only ones. Many scholars believe that Matthew's gospel story was written among the sizable Jewish community in Antioch in current Syria, a city of 200,000 people who lived and worked and slept in a space that was less than half the size of OU's campus. These tight living conditions meant that there was always some kind of chaos erupting in the city, whether that was just a neighborly dispute or an illness outbreak. Antioch was not known as a city of peace. And so in hopes of restoring order, the emperor dispatched 20,000 heavily armored soldiers to live among the people. It was their job to daily remind everyone who was in charge. The sound of Synchronized marching and clanging swords and shouts to Caesar rang out across the two square miles as a reminder to stay in line and a reminder of the consequence if you chose not to. To live in Antioch was to be constantly reminded of the empire's control. Roman buildings and monuments occupied 40% of the city and it provided just one more sign of Rome's presence. And then, then there was the gate. It was a giant archway that was constructed at the entrance to the city, which served as a giant billboard to Rome's rule. The most important, most impressive part of the archway, however, were the two statues 
that sat on top of it. Two wolf cubs chiseled from marble and named Romulus and Remus in honor of the empire's founding fathers. So for Jesus to gather his disciples together and to teach them to pray, Our Father who art in heaven was to deny the power of the fathers of Rome. To pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven was to deny the kingdom that was constantly looming over them. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says in his book, The Lord and His Prayer, Jesus' followers didn't think for a single minute that the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice an improved spirituality, a better code of morals, or some freshly crafted theology. No, they held to a stronger, more dangerous claim. These followers believe that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned from darkness to light. That the kingdom was indeed here, although it differed radically from what they had imagined. For them to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, was to make the dangerous claim that Rome was not supreme. Dr. Amy Jill Levine, one of our favorite theologians around here, summarizes the point when she says, By praying in the imperative, As if one was ordering God, make your kingdom come, one clearly states that the Roman Empire is not what God's kingdom looks like. And yet for the people living in Antioch who prayed the prayer, who who followed Jesus, who read Matthew's gospel, they were stuck in the middle. Knowing that in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, the kingdom of God was here while also having to constantly live underneath the archway of Rome. For them, the kingdom of God that they prayed for was both now and not yet. And so it is with us. Trusting that in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom arrives here on earth, while also living in a world that, in Dr. Levine's words, is not what God's kingdom looks like. It is a kingdom that is both now and it's not yet. And so as disciples of Jesus today, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what do we expect from this prayer? But maybe more importantly, what does this prayer expect from us? For some followers of Jesus, it means to sit back and just wait patiently. Karl Barth, one of the great professors and reformed theologians of our day, was chief among them. Convinced of humanity's uh, total depravity and inability to do good, Barth insisted that the only thing we can do is wait for the kingdom to come to us. He once even replied to a student saying, What an obstinate fellow you are. You write that you were impressed with my lecture last week, and now you manage to put down on paper 
all that nonsense about we must build the kingdom of God, you have not only contradicted merely one insight, but the whole message of the Bible. If you persist in this idea, I can only advise you to take up any other career than that of a pastor. Ugh. Carl. Due respect to Dr. Bard. But as disciples of Jesus, if we simply wait around for the kingdom to drop into our laps, I think we end up devaluing our faith. A faith that can move mountains and produce good news and establish peace. And as Jesus says it himself, can do greater works than these. By only waiting around and reciting prayers, we allow the not yet to dictate the now. We allow the not yet to dictate the now by sitting on our hands and praying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, when unhoused neighbors freeze on the street while mayors and city councils run cost-benefit analysis on human lives. We allow the not yet to dictate the now when we stay silent about Christian nationalism and white supremacy out of fear of being seen as just too political. We allow the not yet to take the now every time we recite the Lord's Prayer with no expectation to be moved in faithful action. And so by lamenting the fact that we cannot solve all the world's problems, we end up giving ourselves an easy out for not even trying. We give up on the on-earth portion of the prayer for the more idyllic and eventual heaven that is to come. But the prayer that Christ teaches his followers is not meant to be a sedative to this world, but rather it is a call to action and to ever more faithfulness. Some of you know this, but every January I return to my alma mater of Austin Seminary for its annual homecoming event. It's a series of lectures given by renowned scholars in their individual fields. Some of these folks are religious experts, there are political scientists, there are philosophers, there are a couple preachers, and there are some musicians. All of them there to present their latest insights in the hope of moving us towards faithfulness and action. What I found, and I think this is common not just for preachers at conferences, is that the most important part that happens doesn't actually take place in the lecture hall, but in the conversations outside of it. This year, that happened for me on a rickety picnic bench with a handful of tacos that were ordered from a taco truck parked outside the seminary's chapel. As we sat on those picnic benches and unwrapped the brisket tacos from their foil covers, an old mentor of mine who I hadn't seen for decades and who's coming near the end of his ministry career, he sat down across from me and he asked the most simple but striking question. Michael, he said in this long southern drawl that I won't try to emulate, what's the best part of being a pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Norman. I'll be honest, the question caught me a, a bit off guard in between bites of brisket taco. But it didn't take me long to answer. 
Setting my dinner back down on the rickety picnic table, I said, Ted, these are a people who truly believe with everything they have that they can change the world. We both smiled and nodded and went back to our tacos. A congregation that refuses to let the not yet to dictate the now, and one that works every single day to meet the expectations here. What more can you ask for? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. In the name of the Creator, the Christ, and the Spirit.